This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Cork Street Galleries. To find out more about the original home of the art world, go to corkstreetgalleries.com. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about their influences and cultural experiences, the books they read, the music they listen to, the artists that have most profoundly affected them. And in this episode, it's A Brush With, Ali Banisad. Ali was born in Tehran in Iran in 1976 during a tumultuous period. There was the Iranian Revolution in 1979 and then the Iran-Iraq War between 1980 and 1988. These were experiences that marked him tremendously, as we'll hear. His family moved to San Francisco when he was 12 and it was actually there that he began in earnest making art, initially as part of the graffiti art scene. But it was when he moved to New York that he became a fine artist and that's where he continues to live and work today, in Brooklyn in fact. In New York he studied first at the School of Visual Arts and then went on to study at the New York Academy of Art. But actually it was a trip to the site of the D-Day landings in Normandy in France in 2006 that really marked a turning point in his artistic work and Ali will tell us much more about that in the conversation. Quite soon after that he began to settle on a style that he's been honing over the last 15 years. These are epic canvases that he creates, teeming with energy, with figures emerging and retreating amid a huge variety of painterly marks. The colour is extremely vivid, there is an extraordinary amount of detail and often one can get lost in that and that's a key factor in his work in the sense that you can look at these things for hours. His earliest mature paintings have a bird's eye view of fantastical landscapes and that's a space that instantly evokes two of the major traditions that have played a role in Ali's work. So the Northern Renaissance tradition, people like Hieronymus Bosch and Peter Bruegel the Elder that he saw in European and US museums but then also the Persian miniatures of his native Iran. But then when it comes to Ali's painterly language there's a lushness and expressive quality to the paint which actually comes from the Venetian Renaissance tradition so people like Titian and Veronese and Tintoretto and followers of that tradition like Rembrandt and Velasquez. There's also an abiding concern with the grotesque in Ali's work so Bosch and Bruegel again but also artists like Francisco de Goya and those dark and twisted fantasies of the Caprichos but also a lot of those grotesque forms in his paintings come from the modern period so people like Max Ernst the great surrealist who used decalcumania this chance form of image making to conjure these strange and dark fantastical forms from his imagination and then also Francis Bacon again those twisted forms which emerge from a deeply imaginative engagement with the figure and with space there's also a sense of the chaos of the modern world there's a sense that Ali is engaging with the present very deeply if not in the most literal way Abstraction's also been a key element of Ali's work. There was a playfulness with abstraction right from the start, and in fact, in some of the early paintings, you'd have these whole areas of the canvases that would be totally dominated by shape and colour, completely independent of the figurative elements of the canvases. Now there is a greater abstraction overall, but it's much harder to look at one of his more recent paintings and say definitively that one particular form is a figure. And again, one of his more consistent elements in his work has been a certain slipperiness. You think you can pin down the compositions, you think you can define what you're looking at, but very quickly you're transported into a totally different realm within the canvas. As I say, these paintings can absorb you for long periods, and this is something that Ali clearly admires in many of his influences. 
Another quality in Ali's works is that they are enormously sensory. And I think this is definitely something to do with the fact that Ali has synesthesia, that neurological trait or condition in which two senses are involuntarily linked. Ali has auditory visual synesthesia so that sound can just form and vice versa. And he will talk in detail about that experience a bit later. Sound and vision indeed have been part of his work from the start and in fact that's where I began our conversation. I wanted to go back to his experiences as a child in Iran and how as the Iran-Iraq war raged around him and his family his response was to go to the basement and make drawings. You know when I was three there was the revolution and then when I was four the war had started so I do remember, you know, whenever there was like, whenever there were air raids, there would be an alarm and we would have to go down to the basement. And there was a kid who I, who was my friend, who was the same age as me. So we would just draw. That was just like our ritual. And they were all based on sounds, really. I mean, there was some visual aspects to it, too, that I had seen, but mostly it was, it was sounds and vibrations and I would make these worlds, these drawings of these worlds. And uh, I guess it was a way for me to sort of try to understand what was happening around me because I couldn't see it so much, but I could hear it. Um, and that lasted about eight years. So that ritual sort of, um, of, of drawing, each time there was you know, some kind of chaos, it, it kind of continued on. And then when you were visiting D-Day sites in Northern Europe, this somehow connected to that experience, reconnected you to it. Is that right? That's right. So when I went to the D-Day site, I guess I had this sort of feeling that it was sort of like I had been there before. So like as if I was remembering something, but I knew I hadn't been to Normandy before. And I was sort of walking around sort of in a daze and I didn't know what was happening I just knew that there was something that was triggering my memory. And when I got back from Normandy, I started making these charcoal drawings that were based on, based on sounds because it's somehow I feel like the, going to the D-Day site, it sort of connected me back to what I had experienced, which I hadn't even thought about it at all. I sort of had, I don't know, like... <laughs> buried it deep within me or put it to the side or something like that. But then this was in uh, graduate school. So these charcoal drawings that I made, they, it sort of like opened up something that I was after. It felt more real than anything that I was doing using references and such. So I think it kind of connected me back to something that I was looking for within myself. That's fascinating. Uh, tell me about synesthesia, because you've talked about how, you know, effectively sound produces images for you. So tell me about that process. And I'm wondering, particularly, can it be as much of a disadvantage as it is an advantage for you? Yeah, I mean, I think for the longest time, I thought everybody kind of has this, <laughs> you know, because if I would listen to music, there was just this ongoing parallel visual world that would just like go on and on sort of like a dream and then the other way around when I would look at visuals I could hear like little notes of sounds from it and then also like when I read literature you know it would build these places in my mind that I could but I could smell it I could feel it within my own body I mean if it was like very good literature so I never felt like it was 
a disadvantage because I didn't even know that it was something that was different. I thought it was just something that sort of everybody had when they, you know, read something great. But I think as I started kind of talking about it, this word kind of came around and then and then Kandinsky's book was mentioned. And then when I read it, I kind of realized that's that's something, you know, like when I hear a person's name turns into color or the way I categorize people or the way I categorize tastes, so like all these. And then also, like, I think another thing was that when I was painting, I was really, really like feeling what I was painting within my own body as if as if it's like happening to me, even though if it was like things very abstract, like if there's like a figure that's part metal or robotic or, or something like that, like I feel like I had to feel it within my own body in order to be able to create it. So the senses were quite uh, sensitive to each other. So I guess what I was wondering about in terms of disadvantages, does it interrupt the creative process or is it effectively something that you can control and you can harness, I guess? I don't think it disrupts because a huge part of my practice is just to like sit in front of the painting and listen to the painting and see where it wants to go and what it wants. And I mean, that's how I'm able to even know which direction to go or how to compose the work. So I think if if that voice wasn't there, if those sounds weren't there, I I probably wouldn't know where to go. I I wouldn't know which direction to go because I don't use I don't use any references. I heavily rely on memory and just rely on the fragments that I've created in the painting and I just sort of like a I serve the painting in a way, you know. I I I I listen to it and I sort of it's like a dance. And I think I think if if I didn't hear those sounds from the painting, those notes from the painting, um, and which, you know, some days I don't and nothing happens. So (laughs) I'm interested in your growing up in San Francisco and then being a professional artist in New York and how those two cities have, have influenced your practice in different ways. And why is it important, for instance, to be in New York and not San Francisco in in terms of making work? I think. When I was in San Francisco, um, it was at a time where I wanted to just like experiment and I had like my own community of artists that, you know, we weren't going to art school and we sort of just wanted to kind of feed off each each other and, and see where things could go. But then I think I reached a place where it was sort of limiting in a way and I wanted to... I wanted more. And that's when I moved to New York to go to art school in 2000. And the amount of cultural spaces in New York are just endless, you know. So I think just to just the energy, I think the energy of New York, the energy of uh, knowing that there's constantly so many artists making things, especially in Brooklyn, where I am, and its history and the cultural spaces that you could visit and sort of feed off from are endless. So I think, I think it was definitely, it, it was taking you to another step for sure, being here. 
One of the things I'm really conscious of is that you want to very directly engage with the art of the past. So in the Rizzoli book, there's those series of pages in which you've chosen works that are particularly significant to you. You've just had this show at the Wadsworth Athenaeum where you went through and chose certain works that corresponded with yours. You've had a show at the Bernacki Museum where you showed your work alongside historic pottery. Some artists, I think, shy away from engaging that directly with the art of the past when showing their work. But you've really confronted that head on, haven't you? I think one thing is that for me, like if, a, if an artwork speaks to me, even if it's from 500 years ago, like it's contemporary to me. I mean, something that was made yesterday might not speak to me. So then to me, it's not contemporary because it's not speaking to me. I feel like all the, all the works that I'm interested in, they're so different from each other and such diverse range of works, you know, from like ancient Egyptian and Mesopotamian to... Persian miniature to Renaissance works to Japanese prints. And I feel like in a way, like it's not so much that um, I'm quoting him directly in my work, but it's more like I'm creating an atmosphere within my own imagination. I'm creating an atmosphere that I could sort of like go to and like an orbit around that kind of an idea. And and it it could be you know, like, let's say what Velasquez, it, it will be like maybe the way he paints that hair or, 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 the, or the texture with Tintoretto. It could be the way that he could create like as if things are just floating in space and there's no gravity. I think with each of those historical works or be it anything, film or anything, I feel like I give myself a sort of um, anchor to a particular corner within my imagination that when I'm painting, I'm able to think in all those many different ways. It's not just like one way to build up the painting. You know, I could come in, I could come into the studio and maybe that day I'm in, I'm in this kind of headspace. Maybe I've gone to the Met and I looked at a painting and I'm sort of thinking, how could I bring that into my work? But within that particular day, I could also think another way too. I could, I could think like the way like Hiroshige kind of composes his works like maybe I could use that or even how do I bring in like a pure pure kind of color situation you know like a a color field painting into the work so it sort of vibrates like a Rothko or something like that so I think these visual kind of like tools in your toolbox you're able to just like sort of pull them out and think about it from what you remember from memory and that's so important to me to like go to shows and just like take in things into my memory so they kind of stay there but they could also change in my memory they could change to something else or they could like they could like kind of (laughs) merge with something else and become something else and that's that's the interesting part this sort of line between things and how things merge together and things that have nothing to do with each other maybe but in my mind somehow they make sense and they they merge together and they create this new thing so all this sort of unfolds in my imagination, but also in the paintings. My whole aim is to be able to paint things that is taking place in my imagination. (laughs) In the last podcast, I asked Judy Meritu if she ever got lost in her paintings. And I wondered about the same with you, because if you are creating these extraordinarily dense surfaces, these these incident-packed canvases, are there moments where you get lost? And is, is that essential to you in the same way it is to Judy? 
I mean, getting lost is the whole point, I think. You're trying to quiet down the rational side of your brain and, you know, visual thinking is the thing you're trying to get to where it's completely a different way of thinking. It's, it's um, you know, like Bergson talks about a floating consciousness in the air and your and your head sort of being like antennas and you and you kind of catch this consciousness in the air and you bring it into the work and have it be like these sort of symbols or whatever they are and i think that to me the whole point of painting is so when i'm finished with it like the painting tells me things i didn't know before the painting communicates these symbols and these things that that going into the painting. I mean, I bring something to it and it gives me something back that I didn't know before. So getting into the that sort of shamanistic zone where you're like time disappears and, you know, you're no longer in the studio, as Gustin would say, I think that's the whole point. Like on good days, that happens and, and everything, nothing matters. Everything stops. <laughs> You're like in a different sort of portal with the painting. Uh, so let's start with the questions that we ask all our guests. Which artist was the first artist that you loved? So when I was seven years old with my family, we took a European trip to... Italy, France, Greece, and Spain. And one thing, something that happened to me that since it's happened two other times, we were in Rome at the Sistine Chapel and something happened where I was looking at the Michelangelo, The Last Judgment. And I mean, I remember, but also my mo mother reminds me that I sort of wasn't there anymore. Like something was happening to me and she was talking to me and and like I just, I was in a different place. And when I think about it, I feel like something was communicating to me in such a way that it was sort of entering me. Like it was like getting a hold of me and just sort of like going into my body or something. And it's interesting because whenever I'm working on my paintings and sort of looking at these fragments I've created and I want like some kind of a figure to come out, I feel like I always see these movements that like it's sort of like the, the Michelangelo painting is like ingrained in my brain from, from being a child somehow. It sort of entered me and it sort of stayed there and it's always like these figures are moving around in space somehow. So I would say that was probably a painting where I felt like wow, like, this is what art could do. It could, it could sort of grab a hold of you and, like, enter you in such a way that I, I had, you know, I had never experienced or since there's only been two other occasions. You've got to say what those are now. <laughs> oh, yes. So <laughs> the two other occasions were both two different Bosch paintings. One was I went with my wife to the Prado and you know, you enter and I went straight to the Garden of Earthly Delight. And this was like when the museum had opened. And then my wife said something. I don't even know what she said. She disappeared. She came back, said something, left. Next thing I knew, it was like sort of in the afternoon. And again, I feel like 
this thing happened, you know, like I stood in front of it and then time stopped and I was in another place. So this was once. Another time was <laughs> going to the Academy of Fine Arts in Vienna with my mom on my birthday. I said, I want to go see this painting. So we go see this painting. Same thing happened. She's yelling at me saying, you know, we need to go. There's lunch, something, blah, blah, blah. She leaves. I'm just there stuck with this painting. And the amazing thing was that I ended up having a show with this painting a few years later. Like, I, who would have knew? I had no idea this would have happened, but it was like five, six years later or something like that where, you know, I had a show. It was just called Bosch and Banisad, which I, I still can't believe it happened, but it was that painting and, and like um, three of my large paintings. It must have been an extraordinary experience. I mean, do, do you feel nervous exhibiting your work next to uh, major works like that? Because it's about to happen again, isn't it? Because you're going to show, be showing your work right alongside a Donatello. So, what? It, it, I mean, obviously there must be a certain level of excitement, but you are literally being shown right directly alongside some of the greatest works of art ever created. That must be extraordinary. Oh, it's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, it is. No, I, I don't feel nervous, but I do feel like it's sort of you're, you're setting a high bar next to these artists that you admire that you think, okay, like I have reasons to go back to the studio. You have a long, long way to go in your mind to, I mean, even try, not even get close, but you know, you have, you have something to kind of work towards. <laughs> Absolutely. And I want to go back to the uh, Michelangelo because you're very young at that stage did the idea of being an artist even enter your brain at that stage so are you thinking that's what I want to do at all or is it simply that you're having this experience and you can't name it and you can't really put your finger on what this experience is I don't think I don't think I thought about like being a professional artist till later I mean I think I've always did it I always made art since I was a kid but i didn't think that that's something as like a job or anything like that. I think when I was in San Francisco, because my mom is a psychologist and I was interested in psychology and Jung and also, you know, interested because I was trying to understand what this thing is that like this parallel world is, this sort of synesthesia, like I was interested in that. And I feel like psychology was kind of giving me a little bit of clues of what these things are, you know, the unconscious and I think it wasn't until 2000 when when I decided to move to New York and really go for it and go to art school is when I said, OK, this is it. Like, I, I want to go further with this. I want to pursue this. And, and, and so is Bosch the historical artist that you turn to the most still? Bosch is one of them, yes. But probably, yes, because it's, it keeps giving, you know, it, it doesn't stop. <laughs> I think Bosch and Bruegel, for sure, I think. Tintoretto, Titian, Goya, William Blake. <laughs> I think I think the list of artists goes on, but these are the ones that like always ends up on my on my I have like a this big table in the studio where whenever I start a new painting, images start to sort of pile up as like a mood board in a way. Like the painting basically dictates which books to go after because there's something in there that I want to use and a lot of times it ends up being like the same artists, really, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, Velasquez and, and the Guernica and all this stuff. So it just ends up on my table.
It seems to me that there's a really interesting thing in terms of your own work, in terms of the artist, in, in, in those illustrations in, in the Rizzoli book, but also just in terms of what you've talked about in the past. And that's, on the one hand, you have that incredible intensity and activity in people like Bosch and Bruegel. And then the other artists that you mention a lot, people like Velasquez and Titian and Veronese, there's that very fluent, very painterly language. And it seems to me that those are the kind, that's the kind of push and pull in your own work, isn't it? That intense activity on the one hand, and then the, the looseness and, and that kind of very painterly quality that your work has. Exactly, yeah. I mean, I think they fall into those two categories where, you know, like Bosch, Bruegel, Persian miniatures, they're like world builders. They, wor- they built these worlds, and, and you always have this sort of like bird's eye perspective where you're, where you're looking at this sort of world landscape. And, and, it's, and it's funny because one of the things I love to do is to go to this park by my house, Fort Greene Park, and, you know, it's a fort, so it's like quite high. And I stand there and I look around in the park and you have this sort of 360 degree view. And I'd love to like watch people from a distance because, because then you're just looking at it from a different perspective. You're, you're sort of seeing body language, body movement, bodies in motion, uh, groupings of people. And that's, that's always interesting to me. So, you know, we talk about film later, but like, you know, Tarkovsky does that in like Rublev, for example. And I love that because it's like a way of sort of like showing humanity from like a macro level. Like, this is what we do. This is, this is sort of who we are. <laughs> yeah. So Bosch, Bruegel and Persian miniatures have that aspect. Then you're dealing with paint, of course. Like, how do I, I'm using paint. So how do I, how do I paint these things? And then of course... I'm looking at Velasquez and the Venetian painters because, I mean, the way they paint is just, <laughs> you can't get better than that. How do you have paint create these things where you step back from a painting, everything comes together, but then you get close and it just like vanishes, you know, that's just magic in a way. Yeah, it's, it's, it's that sort of amazing push and pull in your work, which and I imagine it must take a long time to get right with some of those bigger paintings because on the one hand, you need to have that kind of delight in the paint. But I guess, it, well, I suppose in, other, in, in some ways, it's just easy to get carried away in either direction, right? Yeah. So they can be too painterly or they can, can be too incident packed so that, so that you have to preserve that tension to a certain degree. Exactly, yeah. And I think that's where the aspect of sound is quite helpful for me because... At the beginning, I create this sort of chaos where like there's just like polyphony of sounds everywhere, you know, and they're not they don't really go together. And then my job becomes to like kind of tune all these sounds together, you know, get rid of the loud sounds, connect sounds that go together. It's like a symphony that you're sort of every part of the painting is just going on its own and you're trying to sort of like connect it together. And then when you connect all of it together, as a whole, the energy of the painting, it sort of becomes activated. And when it becomes activated, it almost feels like they don't need me anymore. And I step back, the painting quiets down. And there's sort of like a, the way I describe it is like, I feel like there's like an air running through the painting and there's nothing blocking this air. This air is fluidly like blood in your veins is just like going round and round. And the painting is sort of reached that point where I could just step back now and and leave it alone. But that does take a very long time for that to happen. 
<laughs> I'm sure it does. I wanted to go back a bit to the synesthesia in the sense that is like the, the most obvious way that I might expect it would happen is that colour is like melody and mm-hmm. form and shape is like rhythm. But is it is it that simple? <laughs> or is it much, much more complex and individual than that? Yeah, I think it's more complex. I think that like color could have like a, for me, it has like more like a vibration, you know, like a, like a humming sound or something like that. But then there's also like sounds of textures. There's like fast sounds, there's slow sounds, there's rising sounds, there's falling sounds, there's heavy sounds. And then, and then the figures have sounds of breathing, moving, sounds coming out of them. They're usually hybrid, so there's like an animal-human sound. So there's every part of the painting that my eyes goes to, there's a, there's a particular kind of sound. But in order for me to know, like, okay, what does it need over there? Like, I could hear that, like that sound of like a humming sound. Okay, like, I need to put that there. And then there's like maybe something that's like quite loud and it's disturbing the whole energy. Then I have to get rid of that. So there's when you're connected with the painting and when you go to that place that we were talking about, that you're sort of like in the zone and you're no longer here, then you almost could also see like the next step. I don't know how to describe it, but like you, you kind of like see the next step before it happens. And then so, so when you're in this mode, it's just like you, you put one thing down and then you see the next thing and then you go after that and then you see the next thing. And so it's just like this sort of, oh, I love those days. <laughs> <laughs> it's, That's wonderful. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask about the Persian miniatures. You, you've mentioned them and it seems to me that one of the most interesting aspects about Persian miniatures is the notion of time and that sort of the, the, that, the all over effect that you've talked about, but also that the way that they can contain multiple senses of time. And um, I know that Kamal al-Din Bizad is, is the Persian miniaturist that you've talked about the most. And it seems to me that's so present in his work. It's so, time is so complex in those paintings. Yes, it's true. And, you know, the thing about Bezat that's so amazing is the fact that, you know, the Persian miniatures before him, they were always like a school of. So there was never like a particular hand that got in there and you were like, oh, that's the hand of that particular you know master but with him he was able to distinguish faces from each other he was able to like sort of bring in something that kind of it was very like personal in a way you know he was still using that language but he was sort of changing it he was like breaking it in in a way and yeah I mean the whole aspect of time in Persian miniatures I mean I love the the cubist aspect of them where like everything is just like on the surface, everything is flattened out. What I love about that kind of work is that they're so encyclopedic, you know, they, they could have a whole universe within them. Let's talk about contemporary artists. Which contemporary artists do you most admire? Yeah, again, there's certain like contemporary artists that they just never get old for me. Like I could just keep going back to and just like seeing their show after show and the journey that they go through. And it's always like, I'm always sort of fascinated by, and they sort of create their own sort of universe, you know, like Chris O'Philly has always been one of my favorite artists. I think the way he sort of changes his language, but then also like the way he uses color, the way he kind of creates these timeless, timeless worlds, you know? 
Peter Doig has always been, in, I, I've always liked Peter Doig's work as well, where he could just take something so simple, like a landscape or a man in a boat or something, but then like there's some kind of magic in there. There's something, something's happening in there, but it's the invisible part of it that's quite interesting to me, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Dana Schutz is another artist I really like. I think the way she just, the way she handles pain is just like incredible and the world she builds. Neil Rausch is another one who, I don't know, something about his work that I always feel like, again, it's like, I'm like, I know those places, but how? I don't know how. I just know those places. I think because they're like places of dreams or, or, or imagination again. But, but also the way he's able to know which part of the painting could just be totally abstract and then, and then which parts become, become figurative. And the, the way he's able to play with that is just like amazing to me. It just opens up like a lot for me. That's really interesting because the, the, the artists you just named all in their very distinct ways have engaged with that long history of painting that you're grappling with. And of course, there are just there, there are obviously so many trajectories to that history. And, but, but each of those artists, I mean, even though um, Peter Doig and Chris Ophelia are sort of good mates, you know, yes. and have obviously have an ongoing dialogue that the, their work is so utterly distinct from one another's there are occasional shared elements but but fundamentally they're engaging with the tradition in very very idiosyncratic ways aren't they and I suppose in a way that is the wonder of painting isn't it that that you can you have so much history that you can find your way to build on it exactly and I think they also have this timeless aspect to all these works that I really love you know like they're they're timeless but they're also able to digest contemporary situations like current events or anything and sort of inject it into the work, but not in such a direct way, not in such a way that becomes propaganda, but in a way that it's poetic, you know, and that to me has always been quite important to be able to see things in a, in a poetic way. And, you know, when I was a kid growing up in Iran, my, my grandmother was a poet and and she would like read to me like Hafez or, you know, these Sufi poets like Rumi and Attar. And of course, I didn't understand. But in a way, I feel like she was reading these to me in order for me to like become ingrained in me. So like I'm able to sort of see the world in this poetic way. And I think it's helped because it's just there, you know, I might not like know it by heart, but it's like a filter to be able to see the world through. You, you mentioned your table in your studio with the, with the works that you keep referring to. Do you have things pinned up on the wall around you? Does that change at different points? Are there times when you have to take things down? I've always had this group of works on every door of my studio that I've ever had, and I don't think it's changed much. <laughs> you know, I have my Bosch and Bruegel and Goya and Max Ernst and de Kooning, I think, I think they've went on many doors. They're sort of uh, turned yellow and falling apart, but Francis Bacon, you know. So I think they're, they're these anchors that, like, I kind of feel like I fall between all these, all these works somehow. I do have a Martin Schongauer that has always been up on my wall. It's, it's the temptation of St. Anthony. I just can't get enough of this one. <laughs> This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Cork Street Galleries. 
Cork Street in London has been the home of modern and contemporary art since the early 20th century and is where the UK careers of some of the greatest artists of recent times, artists like Francis Bacon, Max Ernst and Paul Clay, were launched. In 2019, the Pollen Estate doubled the amount of gallery space on the street as part of its commitment to the Cork Street Galleries Initiative, reigniting Cork Street's reputation for innovation and cementing its status as an internationally significant destination for art in the 21st century. Cork Street Galleries accepts proposals for permanent occupations as well as temporary residences. For more information, go to corkstreetgalleries.com. Which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently? Well, the Met is sort of my second home, and I think it's a place where I could go there for different reasons. One could be if I have an agenda, you know, it's something particular that I'm looking for that a painting's giving me a hard time and I need to go and find it and, and, then, and then internalize it and come back. So there's times where I go, when I go there for an, when I have an agenda and then there's times that I go there that I just want to get lost. And those uh, visits I really enjoy because I go from one wing to another and make connections between things and then come back and then something happens in my head and, and it works its way into the painting. I also love going to the Frick. And then when it comes to outside of, you know, New York or U.S., like I love the Prado. I think that museum, I mean, I would just go once a year to Madrid just to go to the Prado because the Bosch and the Bruegel and the Velasquez and the Goya. And the interesting thing is that I read that... Um, that Velasquez was actually the curator for the king. Yeah. So, so a lot of those things he picked them. He's, I want that Titian. I want. <laughs> so it makes so it makes sense. It's, there is that. It's just such a wonderful story, isn't it? He's over in Italy, effectively collecting works for Philip the Fourth, and and you know, so it, you have an artist's eye collecting for for a royal collection. It's such a wonderful yeah. story, and I, th- I think you know one of the things that that I'm always interested in is when artists curate because even when you curated from the Wadsworth thing, so you're collecting from that single collection I noticed you chose some quite unusual things and, and, and likewise in, in the front of the Rizzoli book this, this thing that I keep referring to you're pairing things that aren't natural bedfellows but because it's your artist's eye because you're seeing it from the point of view of an artist often you have a kind of a different viewpoint from the one that an art historian might have Exactly, I mean they say that like art historians categorize and label everything and then artists come and like mess it all up. I think I think that's the kind of thing where you I see the connection through it, but it might not make any sense in art historical terms. But in my mind, there's elements of, you know, things I see like in Hirosh- Hiroshige that might connect to some other artists. And, and, and it's sort of like you're, you know, in Wadsworth, the works that were all up together, like People could see that there's some connection, but they couldn't really name it. Like, why? Why did these go together somehow? Um, And that's the kind of thing that I wanted to show. (laughs) Um, Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? I mean, travel is always something. Whenever I travel somewhere, I come back and and, and, and something has changed me. Something has happened. But I think the one that stands out the most is during graduate school when I went to Florence and I lived there for some time and every day walking around and going to different museums or, or learning about the history of the city. And that was, that really, really 
changed something within me when I came back. You know, I think I think I just took in so much information that when I came back, it sort of like created a new foundation within me. And so it must be particularly wonderful for you to therefore have two shows of your work in in Florence coming up. Very much so, yeah. And and also because I love Dante so much and the show at Palazzo Vecchio, I made three large paintings that are revolve around Dante's Inferno. Although I had read Dante different translations of it, this made me like really dive dive deep within Dante and it just goes deeper and deeper as you dive in. Uh, I mean, I have like so many books and articles and I kept like finding Dante everywhere in any of my books. So it'll be really exciting for me to have the show at Florence. <laughs> when, when you came to think about Dante, the obvious connection would be to think about Botticelli. Did you engage with that history of illustrating Dante as well as reading the poetry or did you want to bring something completely unique to it to com- that was completely yours if you like no I think yeah I wanted to bring something that was mine because I feel like in Dante like the fact that he wrote it in ver- vernacular he he wanted it to be like contemporary and 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 I, and I think I wanted to sort of like tap into that encyclopedic visual world of his that he was creating in my head but then also of course deal with bringing my personal history and definitely a lot of current event situations and, and art history too. So I looked at all the artists from Botticelli to William Blake to Rauschenberg, who did each, you know, each canto. It took him like two years or something. I think it opens up like a whole world, really, you know, the fact that like he goes and meets all these, all these people and all these people are like, they all stand for ideas, really, you know, these, these sort of like, philosophical conversations that voices within your own head that you always have these sort of like agreements or disagreements with. So there's actually a really great new translation by Mary Jo Bang, which I read, which she brings in contemporary aspects to it, you know, like talking about like Bob Dylan is in there and stuff like that. So... It's great that we're talking about literature because that's the next subject. So which writers or poets do you return to? Yeah, I think I think books really, really have um, a huge impact on my work. And, you know, I could start with epic poems, which I'm quite interested in, you know, like Dante's Inferno or The Odyssey or Epic of Gilgamesh, which I think is incredible. I think they sort of hold the essence of every story within them and so much so many symbols and archetypes and characters and, and, and allegories and stuff like that. But then also, as I've said, like poems like Sufi poets are always uh, open up like a whole world for me. And then you could move on to like, you know, I've read everything by Orhan Pamuk, uh, Umberto Eco, Borges. <laughs> I, th- I think I like, I like writers that, Again, it's like sort of they have a whole world within their story and there's no time, like time sort of goes in and out and there's like stories within stories and and, and it just kind of like 
moves on that way. And it's interesting, I've noticed that you have referred to Rumi when you've talked about not wanting to be pigeonholed and wanting to have the kind of freedom to be a, di- a very diverse artist and to be, in a sense, almost to be multiple artists at once. Yes. And, and tell, me, tell me a bit about that. Yeah, I never liked the idea of being categorized. And I think going back to curating a show like in Wadsworth, it kind of shows that you could be all these things at once. You could, you have multiplicity within yourself, you know, like Dante said, like, how many people could you hold within yourself, you know, and how many voices could you hold within yourself? And I think that Rumi poem is, is like a great one, because he's not willing to commit to any of those labels. He's just basically saying, I'm just breath, I'm just air, you know, (laughs) I'm just energy. Um, This idea that everything is as important as everything else, like, a rock, a plant, a human being, animal, air, like everything is part of the same thing. And in my paintings, I, I always think about that, you know, there's, you don't want, that's why I don't have like a central figure in my work, because I feel like everything is important. Every corner, every part of the painting is as important as the rest. And it's also the, the figures never 100% cohere into a sort of monolithic being do they even even if you can make out a figure very often that figure will be almost in the process of forming or the process of fading or the process of being erased somehow exactly i i love this things are in middle of transformation you know things are becoming something else they're 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 moving they're in motion but they're also in middle of transformation, be it from like, you know, a human being to like ether or air or something like that. Um, And I think, again, it goes back to trying to stay true to the imagination. I think that's that's the way your your memory, because memory is quite important for me, like memory of things are always changing in your mind. And you can't quite remember things in a very like 100% solid way. They're always sort of changing and transforming and I want to kind of mirror that in the work. I, I wanted to ask you about the the very first painting, a really seminal painting for you, that in some way articulated your D-Day experience, that D-Day site, was, was called The Wasteland. And you've spoken about the like ancient epic poetry, but I wondered, was that a, an Eliot reference and therefore a, a reference to a modern epic? No, I love T.S. Eliot and I love Yeats as well. I think that painting was the first painting I made after making those charcoal drawings based on sound when I said, okay, now I'm going to make painting from memory. And the painting has this giant crate in the middle of the painting. And that's one of the actual visual things in my memory that I had seen where a bomb was dropped in my school in like in the yard, let's say. And it had it, the bomb hadn't gone off, but like it had left this giant crate and I remember seeing that and I think it just sort of stayed with me and a lot of the paintings that I made during that time had or even before that always had all these craters within them and um, again something that just sort of stays in your memory and comes back somehow and 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 uh, you try to make sense out of it yeah so is and is that quite typical for you in your work in the sense of you're as likely to call on a sort of memory of a painting 
as you are to call on a very quite painful, clearly, memory of your life. So they're as much sort of biographical, autobiographical as they are about a sort of language or library of images that have been built up from culture. Yeah, I think it's always a combination of those things, you know, like you have your personal history in there, but then you you have it sort of mixed with something current event that makes, you know, echoes that and then something art historical that echoes that. And that's why the titles for me are always quite important because they have to sort of be this umbrella that contain all those things within them. And also they're sort of like a, they're able to convey that, slice of time when you were working on the painting and what kind of uh, headspace were you in. So I'm able to, when I look at my work from the past, I'm able to kind of remember, oh yeah, I was in that kind of headspace. I was reading that. I was thinking about that. This this thing was happening. It, it, so it's like they're, they're sort of like chapters of your life in that way. Yeah. Um, let's talk about music, because it seems to me that this seems very pertinent to what you were just talking about. Which music or other audio do you listen to as you work? I do listen to music. I do listen to audiobooks and podcasts, news. Um, I turned it off from 2016 to 2020, <laughs> but uh, maybe I'll get back to it now. Um, <laughs> I think with music these days, I mean, I have a huge range of music that, you know, playlists that I have, but I think um, music that I constantly go back to, they have this thing in common where they're fall somewhere between classical and electronic, and they're sort of have this hypnotic thing going on, you know, there's like maybe some choir in the back. Again, it's like they all have something in common in my mind, you know, like let's say Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, which I, I love, um, and then like, Chopin and Air and Niels Fromm, who is like a perfect combination of this sort of classic and electronic. One of the things that I heard him say that he said that like his dad was like a is like a, a classic pianist and his older brother is like a techno head. And so like his room was between these two. So he, he grew up listening to like one room techno, one room classic music. So he ended up being this sort of combination between the two, which I quite enjoy. And then I, yeah, I do listen to a lot of like audiobooks too. Right. In terms of the music that you have on in, in the studio, I imagine if sound is so important as you described to us, could it, if it's the wrong kind of music, interrupt your creative flow and that sort of imaginative flow if, that you were talking about? Yeah, it's one of those things when you come to the studio and like, Everything has to be in tune, you know, and, and, and when it's not in tune, everything could be disruptive and I could blame the music for not getting in the way of my painting. Um, there, there's definitely like a certain kind of playlist that I could play it and because I've listened to it so much, I feel like it doesn't disrupt but then it all depends on the mood too, you know, like um, when I get towards the end of the painting I don't care what's playing you know like I'm happy because like I've 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 kind of came over so many challenges that you're almost in a more celebrate celebrating mode or something like that but I think 
trying to kind of put yourself in a certain mood, I think going back to this playlist that these these songs that I was talking about is that they, they never disrupt and they sort of like take you back to that to that place in a way. But just to be sure, like the sounds that I'm talking about that I hear come from the painting itself. And then the music, I mean, it's like sort of like a backdrop in a way, like the sounds from the painting are much more stronger than the music. So it's not like I'm using the music to, to paint. Well, sometimes if it kind of squeezes in somehow. <laughs> <laughs> That's really fascinating. But like, for instance, when you title the work Riders on the Storm, how, how much does that relate to an experience of listening to that song by the doors, for instance? Yeah, I think the title, again, like it has to sort of like be an umbrella that kind of covers all these things. And maybe, maybe I was thinking about all these different points that the title has to hit. And then listening to that song, it kind of like emerges in my head, like, and then I'm like, yes, that clicks. That makes sense. That's the title. Right. But I don't think it was a case where like the song was playing at the time and I said, yes, I'm going to use that. It's more like my memory of the song that somehow pops into my head when I'm like, let's say I'm meditating and certain things are emerging on top and like that title somehow presented itself to me and it just clicked and it made sense. What other media influence your work? I think films are quite important for me, certain certain types of films, you know, like I was mentioning, like, let's say, Kurosawa, for example, or, or Tarkovsky. But then it could be anything, really, you know, like if, you know, the thing is that, like, when I'm searching for answers, I'm just desperately looking everywhere for it. You know, it could be film, it could be like a conversation, but it could also be like my environment. It could be I'm walking down the street and I see someone wearing a dress and I see those colors and it's like, boom, there it is. That's what I was looking for. Um, or it could be like my, I have like a three and five year old. It could be looking at their drawings and how free they are. And I could just say, yes, I'm going to take that. <laughs> so you're also looking for answers like in your dreams or within yourself. The answers could be everywhere. You know, if you're looking, you'll find it. But it's no coincidence, is it, that both Tarkovsky and Kurosawa are filmmakers whose films are often described as painterly, you know. So in a way, there's that sort of they're they're imbibing um, paint painting into their into their art and you are reabsorbing their films into your painting. I love that kind of connection that art can sometimes have. It comes both ways, you know. Exactly. Yeah, no. And and also, like, I love Wong Kar Wai, too. And, and he's also like started as an artist, as a painter. And so like you could sort of like pause like every part of the painting and it's like it's like a, it's like a not a painting of, of the of the film. And it could be like a artwork on its own, really, like the colors, the composition, like everything. The way, and one thing that's like really interesting to me is when a soundtrack could go with the visual in such a powerful way like that to me is like so so interesting that always gives me goosebumps like let's say like a David Lynch or or again like Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross like the way they're able to just know what sound goes with what visual part like that that is really interesting to me and I'm always kind of looking for that is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual yeah I think um I come into the studio and i always 
have saved all the paint from the day before in the freezer. So I, I take that out of the freezer and sort of like slowly start to lay it out on my palette table. And that sort of like gets my mind going as I'm laying down the colors, like what new colors do I need? What do I need to mix with what? And then I sit down and just basically look at the painting for about 20 minutes, 30 minutes, just to sort of see if it's going to speak to me today. Um, what does it want? Where am I going to go? And then, and then the day sort of begins, you know, then I'll put something on and, and sort of like begin. Yeah. Yeah. Can you, I mean, do you have several canvases visible at once? Do you only want to focus on one? Because like, for instance, Howard Hodgkin, the painter would cover up he, was, he would work on wood, but he'd cover up his paintings that he wasn't working on with these huge canvases so that he couldn't see anything but the work he's working on. What do, what do you do? I have to only work on one painting at a time because I get so engaged with the painting that's, that just basically takes over my life and it takes over my mind, you know, like I'm going to bed thinking about the painting. I wake up writing in my notes about what I'm going to do the painting, you know, especially when it's like, from the beginning to let's say 75% the painting being done, like there's just gives me a really hard time. There's just so much that I have to like kind of juggle to try to engage in the dance with the work. You know, it's, it's just because there's, there's so many unresolved parts all over and they're all kind of coming, coming at me. And I'm trying to kind of like go after parts of the painting one after another and sort of like, make them sort of connect and I think I think it's it's um it's a lot to just deal with one painting so there's there's I don't want to I wouldn't want to overwhelm myself and also because like I said like I want the painting that let's say I spend two months on everything that sort of gathered on my tables and my and my notes and research and everything I want all of that to sort of be that slice of time in that chapter because research is also like a huge part of my practice where you know like I, I I end up reading a lot of things that have to do with the painting and stuff like that so and then when I'm done with it it's like that chapter is closed and then I move on to to the next one if you could live with one work of art what would it be wow um well I guess I have to go to the Hieronymus Bosch's Garden of Earthly Delight That'll keep me engaged for, for the rest of my life. <laughs> so the last question, what is art for? Well, I think it, what, what it's always been for, which is magic, you know, like from the cave paintings, they were trying to tap into magic, things you can't understand. Like how do you create something or put something in a visual language that we can't really understand? And then... Maybe, maybe if you have the visual aspect of it, then maybe there's a visual thinking some way that you could like understand it in a different way. But I think it's always been about magic. <laughs> right. I wonder also, I'm really conscious of so many of the things that you said today is it's about transporting, you know, you were transported by uh, by looking at Michelangelo and by Bosch, you know, the art has that capacity just to just to take you somewhere else, right? Exactly. It could like enter you, it could take you somewhere else and it could sort of create a visual vocabulary in your mind, you know? I, I like something that Peter Sheldahl said, um, 
the the less you see, the dumber you get, or something like that. <laughs> I mean, neurologists have talked about this: how like art could do things for you that nothing else is able to. That's a great note to end on, Ali. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Rizzoli book that Ali and I discussed is out on the 4th of May and is priced at $85. And as we mentioned, that two-part exhibition in Florence, which marks the 700th anniversary of Dante's birth, is called Beautiful Lies. And it's taking place across two locations in Florence, the Museo Stefano Bardini and the Palazzo Vecchio. It's due to open at the end of April, pending the lifting of lockdown restrictions, and will run until the end of August. Ali's exhibition, The Specks of Dust, is at Casmin in New York from the 6th of May until the 26th of June and he's currently in the Victoria Miro online exhibition The Sky Was Blue, The Sea Was Blue and The Boy Was Blue which is at Vortic.art and he has a solo exhibition at Victoria Miro in London in 2022. He also features in the exhibition at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London called Epic Iran which should open from the 17th of May if the UK's roadmap out of lockdown goes as planned and continue until the 12th of September. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brushwith wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and do also subscribe to our other podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every Friday. You can find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brushwith are by David Clack and the producers of the Art Newspaper podcasts are Julia Mahalska and Amy Dawson. Thanks to Henrietta Bentel, Daniela Hathaway and Kabir Jalla. Huge thanks to Ali Benassad. Join us on Friday for The Week in Art and on Wednesday next week for the next episode of this podcast, which I'm delighted to tell you is A Brush With Doris Salcedo. Bye for now. This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Cork Street Galleries. To find out more about the original home of the art world, go to corkstreetgalleries.com.